welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hello, everyone. Kelly Deutsch here, and today I'm joined by Jim Finley. Um, Jim is a clinical psychologist and a spiritual director, and if I may say so, a mystic. <laughs> uh, he's well known for being a student of uh, Thomas Merton, as well as a spiritual directee. Um, they were spent some time together as monks at the Abbey of Gethsemane, and he's also on the core faculty at the Center for Action and Contemplation and hosted the podcast, Turning to the Mystics, where he explores the teaching of some of the Christian mystics like Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and Thomas Merton too. One thing that Jim does par excellence, I think, is embodying this contemplative life that we're after, and I highly recommend listening to his book, uh, Merton's Path to the Palace of Nowhere. Um, Jim, I have not been able to make it through your entire book because I've been listening to it on audio, and I can only take a few minutes at a time because then I'm just quieted and I have to go sit in silence, so yeah. I, I just have to sip and savor a little bit, yeah. um, so I feel like that contemplative presence you bring is part of part of the magic. That is good. When, I, when Ave Maria Press published Merton's Palace of Nowhere, and then Tammy Simon, it sounds true, asked me to do an audio set, so I did on the path to the Palace of Nowhere. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, that's out there for people. Yeah. Yes, it's wonderful. So today I'm excited to talk a little bit about the intersection of spirituality and psychology. And I love one of the beautiful things about your past is that you have both of those, um, you know, in spades, both that clinical psychological experience, but also the contemplative, the mystical and the spiritual um, and I know you're working on a book that kind of taps into both of those that is um, also shares some of your life story. So I'm excited to hear um, maybe as a starting point, how you would say spirituality and psychology overlap. Oh, um, well, I would say that uh, the reflection I'm about to share will be, I'll be sharing that. Sure. I feel like walk through it and uh, present like a poetic image of it or a poetic understanding or how they touch each other. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing some of it. Um, okay, should I start? I'll start. Please. Okay, good. Uh, <clears throat> you know, in the limited time we have here, I'm looking for some succinct way to uh, present this in a way that will be helpful or evocative for people to sit with and so on. So I'll start this way, that in my childhood growing up, I went through a lot of trauma with a violent alcoholic father. And uh, when I was 14, I discovered the writings of Thomas Merton, a sign of Jonas journal he kept at the monastery and read that over and over through the four years of high school. And when I graduated and I entered the monastery and lived there for nearly six years, and so during that time, I would say I was immersed 
you know, this cloistered, silent monastic life, kind of a mystical Catholicism, or broader kind of contemplative Christianity, or Merton said the contemplative wisdom of all the world's great religions and some poets and philosophers and so on. And um, uh, with Merton's guidance, then kind of ex experientially exploring that, like how to live that. And, and with that, then I'd like to share something uh, like a term that I'm going to be using here. I'm going to then combine it later with trauma and psychology, but I want to apply it to spirituality. And um, the term comes in and uh, in the talk passage I often share on Merton when I start to teach his insights is the last chapter of his book, New Seeds of Contemplation. And um, in that chapter, uh, he, he, he says, he says, the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. So here's a very poetic imagery of the perpetual nature of creation, that this infinite presence of God is presencing itself or pouring itself out in and as the intimate immediacy of our very presence, the presence of others, the presence of all things, and our nothingness without God. So here he's bearing witness to the God-given godly nature of the mystery of what it is to be. Then he says, we do not have to go very far to catch echoes of this game and of this dancing. When we are alone on a starlit night, when by chance we see a flock of birds descending on a, an autumn on a grove of junipers to rest and eat, when we know love in our own hearts, when we see children in a moment they're really children, or like the Japanese poet Basho, we hear an old frog land in a quiet pond with a solitary splash. He says at such times, the turning inside out of all values provide a glimpse of the cosmic dance. So these are moments in that are very subtle. They're very subtle. They're very fleeting. But in moments like this, I think Merton is suggesting, or a momentary mystic. Hmm. It isn't just that I'm. It isn't just that I'm in the presence of God. But rather, I'm going to say here poetically, and here's a term I want to use: is the axial moment. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, I know Ken Wilber has work on spirodynamics and and so on. But I got this in the monastery when I was studying medieval philosophy and Jacques Maritain, the Thomistic philosopher. He says, you know, the ego in ego consciousness, we move in a horizontal line in our passage to sequential time. So one plus one plus one equals three. He said, but with the mystery, it's not like that. He said, in the mystery, we, we, we were poised in a single moment in which we make a kind of a descent in which our very subjectivity turns as on a hidden axis of love. So the and we discovered this in this descent, in this sweet descent uh, on this hidden axis of self-metamorphosizing love, we're dropping down into the abyss-like love of God. It's welling up and giving itself away in and as the intimacy immediacy of the moment. See? Mm. So it, it, it's like, it's like the, uh, the transcending of otherness. In, a, in, a, in an all-pervasive one is extending in all directions like this. And when this moment happens, in the midst of nature, the arms of the beloved, or reading a child a good night story, or uh, listening to the rain, or 
um, helping somebody or whatever quiet hour at day's end. When it's actually happening, it's too self-evident to doubt, it's too deep to comprehend, like the immediacy of it. This axial moment. These moments pass. And we get back to the day-by-day -day ego time. I'm already late, my cell phone's going off. So. But then we start to realize that there's a certain longing to abide in the depths so fleetingly glimpsed. Mm -hmm. In my most childlike hour, I was graced with a oneness, which having tasted it, I know my life without it will be forever incomplete. That the grace of that desire, see, where can I find somebody well-seasoned in such things to um, help me habitually abide in the oneness that I know is always there? Because the intuition is not that in these moments something more is given, but a curtain open, and I fleetingly tasted the infinity that's always given. Hmm. So in echoing Meister Eckhart, if we think of God as generosity, the generosity of the infinite is infinite, and we are the generosity of God. Hmm. But we're exiled, and here is the mystical tradition's understanding of trauma. Trauma meaning the root word meaning a wound or a source of suffering. We suffer from the traumatized capacity to habitually abide mm -hmm. in the infinite love that's pouring itself out. Merton says it beats in our very blood whether we want it to or not. Mm. And so the path then, which is the path of meditation, the path of lexio, the path of silence, the path of humility, the daily rendezvous with God, the guidance, asking God to help us find our way to God, we, you know, we're, the devotional sincerity on the path, how can I this contemplative way of life how can i live this way mm. so in the monastery i was immersed in this and uh when i left the monastery I got married two children and um, i wrote merton's palace of nowhere on this unitive mystery the true self hidden with christ and god before the origins of the origins of the universe and when that book came out i started being asked to lead meditation retreats in the united states and canada and one of these retreats fairly early on, I was offered a doctorate for a PhD degree in clinical psychology under the one condition I integrate my work on the axial moment in mystical traditions with mental health. At the time I was a high school religion teacher and had no background in it. So I moved with my family out here to California and spent five years in full-time doctor work in clinical psychology. And so I kept working, how do I articulate the interface? In other words, another way of looking at it is this, how do I understand the ways in which this axial moment, this transformative self-metamorphosizing moment, how does it not just happen in times of joy, like a joy within joy, a peace within peace, but how, and how does that, foundational joy once found how does that inspire us and move us to touch the hurting places with love so the suffering might dissolve in love in myself and other people but also how is it possible the axial moment arises out of trauma itself hmm. that was my question so for example elizabeth kubler ross on the stages of dying you know she's just a person who goes to these stages Mm -hmm. And the person first is denial, you don't, can't believe it. You know? And then there's anger, and then there's bargaining, then there's depression. And those are all stages of the ego facing its demise. Mm -hmm. 
she says, but finally is acceptance. She's not everybody comes to acceptance. She says to be in the presence of someone in acceptance, you know, you're in the presence of, some, she calls it uncanny. Mm. And here's how I put it poetically to gaze into the face of the dying loved one in acceptance, you know that their face is the gate of heaven wow. because it's freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. See, fear not, Jesus says, See, but fear has no foundations like this. And uh, so it's Gabriel Marcel says, we know we learn to love someone when we've glimpsed in them that which is too beautiful to die. We know we've glimpsed the truth of ourselves, and we see what's too beautiful to die, because then we see who God sees us to be forever. Mm -hmm. okay. So then I thought, well, how does this appear in psychology? In other words, how, in the midst of trauma, how to articulate, first of all, how to discern that it's happening, how to, in discerning it, how to foster it, mm. and fostering how to draw upon it. As, as an inner resource of doing the healing work. Yeah. So let me recap here. So essentially these mystical moments, would you say that's almost like what the Celtics would call thin spaces? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's, where it's, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's a thin between heaven yeah. and earth and there's something exactly. profound happening yeah. there. And so, and I love how you called that being a momentary mystic because yeah. that's, I think so many of us think of the mystics as these people high on the shelf yeah, somewhere yeah. they are yeah. untouchable. But to make make it ordinary, like we all have those moments, like all those examples you were naming there of, you know, your children laughing or the rain coming down, hitting yeah, the roof and yeah, just yeah. these moments where you feel something profound, but unnameable. That's right. um, yeah. And to see, and that makes me super curious then to see where do these axial moments then show up in psychology and how, why in the world would that come in a place of trauma? That's right. And so the first step for me was when I started seeing people in therapy, because I was leading retreats also locally, silent retreats. So the mm -hmm. meals are in silence and they're 20 minute sittings. And I would read a text from one of the mystics and apply it to our life, that kind of thing. And so some of those people started coming to me for therapy. Mm -hmm. And what they wanted is they wanted to be healed from the long-term internalized effects of childhood trauma and abandonment. And they wanted their spirituality to be a resource in their healing. Mm. Also a lot of 12 step people. See, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of following these steps, mm. a lot of 12 step people started coming for therapy for the same way. See, that, that the 11th step, increasing conscious contact with God in daily meditation. So how is psychotherapy meditation for two? See, how is it an encounter of this deepening of this thing? And that's what we're gravitating towards here. Mm -hmm. So what I want to share now is what was a decisive moment for me where it kind of clicked and then I traced it out is I was in my fourth year of doctoral work and I was in one of my years of internship. And I was, I was interning on a uh, inpatient alcohol treatment unit at a veterans hospital. And uh, on the first day on the unit, um, I was told that that morning, uh, there was gonna be an initiation night. There was a secret ritual developed by the men on the unit some years earlier and handed down as a secret oral tradition. And then that morning, someone was gonna be admitted onto the unit. This, this is a person, and these most of these guys were, from Vietnam vets, a lot of them have post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Mm-hmm. And, and dual diagnosis, alcohol dependency, alcohol abuse. So these are people really in the trenches of suffering and in this 12-step program. And uh, so uh, I didn't know what this ritual was. And the person coming in to be accepted, he knew he had to pass the ritual. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know what it was either. This guy with the DTs and I'm drunk. And uh, uh, so... Uh, when I walked into the room, it was a big room. I don't know how many men are on the unit, 80 men. I don't know how many men. And the, the chairs were set up around the four walls of the room. And the middle of the room was empty, except for two chairs in the middle of the room facing each other. And it reminded me of Zen meditation hall. That's what it reminded me of. And when I went in, all the men were sitting on, on the unit in complete silence, kind of looking down at the floor. And uh, I stood over in the corner watching this. And the recovering alcoholic on the unit who was going to lead the ritual brought the person in and led them in and told him to sit down in one of the two chairs in the middle of the room. The person leading the ritual sat down in the other chair. And the person leading the ritual asked the person, uh, what do you love the most? And the person, not knowing quite what to say, often, I think, often when he he said, my wife, at which point everyone in the room would yell as loud as they could, bullshit, like this. Probably the first time someone says bullshit on your podcast. I don't know. <laughs> and, and they screamed it like this. So there was like, like a startled response. Then they looked down again, no smiles, no eye contact, like serious as death, which it was because he was dying of alcoholism. And what do you love the most? My children, bullshit, bullshit. Finally, he would say alcohol. At which point they all stood up they had him stand up and they gave him a standing ovation. And in complete silence, they filed up one at a time and hugged him and he started crying. And I knew this was the first time this person had been touched in a long, long time. And I teared up and the voice inside said, this is just like at the monastery. That is what's going on right now, right now. This is the axial moment, the self metamorphosizing moment. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is, my, this is what I'm looking for, that I was to take this person in this moment as my mentor, and I was to make a list of the qualities of himself in this momentary turning like this, and look on it then as the axial moment, a spiritual awakening arising out of the depths of trauma. Mm. Mm. And so these are the qualities that I saw. Um, first occurred to me uh, is that uh, in this moment, this person was vulnerable. And in his vulnerability, true invincibility was being manifested in the world. Thomas Merton says in one of his writings, he says, um, uh, there is that in us that is not subject to the brutalities of our own will. No matter how badly anyone has trashed us, and no matter how much we've internalized that and trashed ourselves, there remains that in us that remains unthreatened, untouched, and undiminished, because it's that in us that belongs completely to God. Like this. And um, uh, so there's this paradoxical invincibility in vulnerability. Next. In this moment, this man was childlike. 
and in being childlike, true maturity was being manifested in the world. By childlike, I mean there was no posing or posturing. He was guileless. This, this was so disarming about children. They're so open-faced. You know, they're like, he's like, was like right there. And, uh, and I say, so this is the way it is with those who are uh, simply present in sincere, earthy, transparent, and loving ways that are free of pretense and calculating strategies on how to leverage the situation to their own interests or personal desires. Mm. Next, seemed to me that in this moment, this person was all alone. That is, he was unto himself. That he was unto himself, which is his solitude which bore witness to the unit of mystery, which is the psychologist Winnicott says, we're all alone together. Mm, mm -hmm. We're all alone together. Thomas Merton said, in the hour of your death, you can get all the people in the room that you want. They can get up in bed with you if you want, but you're dying alone. And you will never find the intimacy you long for by avoiding that, in, that solitude. Mm. But being in that solitude, you can discover the infinite intimacy of solitude. Plotinus says, never less alone than one alone. That God alone is God, and you alone are you. And in that aloneness, unity shines forth in our oneness with each other. Next, it seemed to me also that in this moment, uh, where the man was standing there with tears coming down his face, that in this moment, he knew nothing. All the bravado of the alcoholic, all that chatter and talk and deflecting language and excuses and all of it. Um, he, all those assumptions see, were kind of falling away into kind of um, uh, an unknowing, mm -hmm. the mystics would say. And I would say also laying bare a kind of a luminous understanding, the poverty of spirit. Mm -hmm. Dan Walsh teaching medieval philosophy at the monastery once said, the monastery said, I know it, I know it, I know that I know it. The trouble is, it's I who know that I know it. And when I try to tell you what it is that I know that I know, I don't know what to say. See, because it's, it's the intimacy of the unexplainable intimately known to me, mm. see, for which I can't articulate. I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like that knowing. Yes, yes. And then you sense that knowing is kind of a homecoming because it's an echo of God's infinite knowledge of you, you see, and participating in God's own knowledge given to you in this uh, unknowing, this transconceptual realization. See. But then there's a language that bears witness to what words can't explain, which is every word of Jesus, the words of scripture, the words of the mystics, the words of poets, the words of lovers, the words of children. They all resonate and reverberate with echoes uh, carry the cadences of this unsayable thing. And you can tell in your heart when it's happening. You can tell when someone's speaking out of that place and um, you're accessed by it like that, I think. Yeah, I love that. And I, I remember when we spoke before, you said you called it sharing what neither one of us can say. <laughs> that's and right. I thought that's such a beautiful way to put it because oftentimes when, when in these deepest axial moments, it does feel like words are stripped away and there's almost nothing that you can yeah. say, you know? It the, is. Yes, it's um, true. It's really true. Yeah. I like what Merton says in the spiritual order, 
You said to understand is to understand that you're understood. Mm. And I also think when we're with someone who really loves us, where there's someone who's deeply present to us, you can tell you're in the presence of the person who sees in you what you can't explain. And they're able to see it because they've seen it in themselves what they can't explain. Mm. And um, the, the, the language is the language of that, which is, the, I think that's the deep language of healing. Mm -hmm. right? That's the depth dimension of the, of the words of, of healing, that logos, like that living language. Yes, okay. yes. I love St. John of the Cross says, God grants it to some people to understand that everything remains to be understood. And um, uh, because it's abyss-like and infinite in all directions. But you can, that is a deeper way to understand what it means to understand. A kind of a quiet amazement or a kind of inner certainty in your heart. Mm. You know, that you're being taught by this infinite unexplainable presence to abide in unspeakable unexplainable presence yes a, it's like that's why i say in these traditions the mystic is not the person who says listen to what i've experienced the mystic is one who says look what love has done to me see yes. there's nobody left thomas merton says as long as there's still you there to have a mystical experience you can't have one see? but when you're kind of swept away by love or silence or a flock of birds descending or a recovering alcoholic with tears coming down his face. Yeah, the curtains pulled back. And I mean, it's like that. Yeah, I like to say that wonder is one of my favorite shortcuts to contemplation because yeah. that is yeah. it. Just you, you're not thinking through anything. Like when you're standing before that flock of birds descending, or yeah. you know, seeing some beautiful majestic vista, you're not sitting there thinking about like, wow, this is really. It's just words are stripped away and it's just That's you right. in presence and there's a deep right. knowing without needing to put it into words that's right and i really think too i mean there's all different ways that we're not used to being our society doesn't teach us to be sensitized to this for example if you go to an art museum and just observe some people came there alone those who are with somebody they speak in hushed tones you see them pausing before a piece of art and really they're contemplating you know they're entering into that state of interior awareness of the depth dimension of the flower or the bird or the woman's face i mean whatever that is like the artist sees something and in their fidelity to it they help us to see it too mm. like that mm -hmm. and the same with you so there's all these different modalities of this path of how do we be stabilized in this and how do we share it with other people? Yes. And that those qualities that you've listed, the vulnerability, the childlikeness, being alone in that solitude together um, and knowing nothing. I think that's such a beautiful description of what presence really is. Yeah, yes, sir. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I spoke with, I know you're also friends with Bonnie Badnock and, you know, she talks a lot about the neuroscience of presence and what it looks like inside yes. your body to have that. But those qualities that you just listed are essentially what's happening interiorly to be that kind of presence, whether it's in therapy or with a friend or with a spiritual director, but yeah. that's really what, like a prerequisite to those ac axial moments with another person to it, have a meditation for two. It's really true. And Bonnie's the one who led me to you, a good friend of mine. And she, see, because it was what we're leading toward. This is the depth dimension of the healing encounter. 
Mm. And um, there's the, this neurobiology, there's, there's like a physiological foundation for this ontological, spiritual, transpersonal reality. And I love can, how that all fits together. Me too. <laughs> the next observation I had about this person is that he was dying. Mm. He was dying in this sense. He was dying in that the alcoholic that was claiming it had the final say in who he was was dying. Mm-hmm. And in that very act of dying, he was being born. So that moment, it was both a, a, a hospice and a maternity ward at once. Mm-hmm. See, see, that if you lose your life, you'll find it. See, so that if I can learn to die to everything less than love, mm-hmm. until only love is left, then the de- deathless nature of love, which is the fullness of my very presence, will shine forth in me like this and, and in the world. The next thing that occurred to me was that at first I thought of the men who were coming up and hugging him. And at, at, first, at first I thought they were walking him, like walking him aboard. But I thought at another level, they were coming up to get a dose of the golden glow, a one fresh from the opening. Mm. You know what I mean? Like this mm-hmm. fresh, like right there. And I also then was aware for all of them and for him, that this was not the end of the journey, but the beginning of a long one. Because the alcoholic wasn't going to politely step aside and let him get away with this. Unless, unless he handed it, unless he knew that a power greater than himself could restore him to sanity. Unless he was willing to hand his life over to that higher power, to the care of that higher power. Unless he was willing to make a fearful, in, fearless inventory of his life. Unless, unless he was able to, willing to make amends. Until he, unless he was able, no matter how many times he fell down, to get up over again, a little more humble. Saint Benedict was once asked in the fifth century, "What do you monks do in that monastery all day long?" He said, "Fall down and get up. Fall down and get up. Fall down and get up." Mm. And so we're trying to put words to something we all know about, but we tend to forget. We all know by experience the sensitivity to these things actually do foster deep happiness but we tend to neglect it. And that's that's what we're always looking for. We're looking for this um, uh, fidelity, like obediential fidelity. I get a feeling sometimes when it comes to this, all of us are so faithfully unfaithful and we're we're so unfaithfully faithful. See, if we weren't being unfaithfully faithful, we wouldn't be prone to listen to this talk nor would it make any sense <laughs> but it's also true human nature see it's also true we're so faithfully unfaithful mm-hmm. and i think it's because it's like we're afraid almost you know what i mean it's, it's this is very mysterious really both with god and ourselves. the vulnerable is it possible that I can be completely vulnerable and completely safe at the same time mm-hmm. is it, we're afraid to lose the control that we think that we have over the life that we think that we're living like this and yet we get this strange feeling we're skimming over the depths of the surface of our own life mm. all the more tragic because the depths over which we're skimming is the depth in which god sustains us breath by breath by breath by breath so it's a gift to see this it's a gift to be touched by this it's a gift to continue on with our with the, with the path and um so this translates to me then as kind of a thesis statement and um 
because I started watching the people in therapy and I watched with endless variations how it, this happens in all, like very subtle ways. But this is the thesis statement that in the axial moment of the psychotherapeutic process, the patient unwittingly assumes a stance strikingly akin to the stance assumed in deep meditation. I want to walk through that for a minute. The patient, not the medical model so much, but the etymology of the word patient, meaning the one who suffers, that the one coming to therapy suffers. And they're suffering on two accounts, the way we're looking at it here. They're suffering with the symptoms that brought them into therapy, their anxiety, their depression, their addiction, the internalized trauma. And they're in therapy, uh, hoping that by our time together, there might be a diminishment of those symptoms. They might be restored to wholeness. <clears throat> And there's, there's the commitment to do that. Okay. The science of that evidence-based therapy on how do you do that. But there's something else too. There's they're a patient and they're suffering from this traumatized state of not realizing how that this infinite love is infinitely in love with them in and as the intimate details of the unresolved matters of their heart. See? This infinite presence is presencing itself giving itself away, whole and complete in the intimate immediacy of their very presence, including permeating the unresolved matters of their mind and heart completely through and through. And they're suffering because they don't know that. It's mm. like, well, that's the foundation of suffering. And it's where those two touch each other. So the next point is the patient, the uh, psychotherapeutic process, psyche, meaning here the whole cell, therapia, the healing of restoring fragmentation to wholeness, the psychotherapeutic process, the transformative process of healing that restores the person to the wholeness of themselves, both psychologically and symptom reduction, but in such a way that it simultaneously opens up this depth dimension of a wholeness within themselves. It can't be adequately explained in terms of symptom reduction. You know, mm. like I matter, I matter, and my life counts, that kind of thing i think and then the axial moment then is the turning it is the turning and it's a stance it's striking me akin to the stance assumed in deep meditation because what is deep meditation these moments we're talking about first in nature and art and children and prayer we can't make them happen that's the thing we can't sit down and make one happen but we can assume the stance that offers the least resistance to be overtaken by what we can't make happen. See, we cannot attain it, but it attains us and our inability to attain it. And so meditation is that poet, lovers cannot make their moments of oceanic communion happen, but they know with practice how to assume the stance together, which to be overtaken one more time by a moment of oceanic union. The poet can't make the poem happen, but the poet learns to assume the stance that offers the least resistance in which the poetry flows. Heidegger says the vocation of the poet is to evoke the holy and it flows not from the person, kind of flows through the person. So with the musician, the poet, the creative, the solitary wanderer, the, whatever our journey is like this. And, um, and, and therefore they're actually assuming a meditate, they might not think of it that way, but they're assuming this meditative stance that offers the least resistance. For in the vulnerability, there arises that flash or that pause or that taste where the tears come with a kind of a quiet. Winnicott says somewhere, he said, it's fun to play hide and seek as long as someone comes looking for you. 
<laughs> and it really hurts when you can tell you're in an axial moment with somebody, like there's a self-revealing moment and the person you're with doesn't see it. Mm. Like strangely alone, you're invisible to this person. So it's so important that the, the, the healing in the healing position that is himself or herself, the wounded healer, you know what I'm saying, is someone who discerns that it's happening and mirrors it back to the person. Because sometimes it's so subtle, they're so identified with their trauma, they haven't yet learned to see the preciousness shining out through the trauma. See? Mm. And then the person can learn, once they learn to see it, once they can recalibrate their heart to, to this depth dimension of themselves, then as they continue with healing, they can learn to keep drawing from it, like draw from that depth to keep touching the hurting places as they move on and on and on through the healing journey. So that, that's, that's my understanding, basically. And mm. it would be like an initial poetic overview of a way to give the sense of it. Yeah. I, I kind of explore that then in detail. And, yeah. I love that. I, um, I've sometimes struggled also to describe like what that stance is like, that habitual stance. And I sometimes call it the Marian stance, you know, yes, like where yes. you're so vulnerable and open and childlike and receptive that the word becomes flesh, you know? That's and, true, that's a good way to put it. That's yeah. A good way to, it's a, another way I put it, it's a stance of sustained attentiveness infused with love. Mm. Another mm -hmm. way I put it, but it is that Marian's, be it done unto me according to your word. Yeah, yeah, which is such a beautiful thing. It and is. I, one thing that struck me as you were um, also talking was how much all of this ties together the contemplative and the active life. Because yeah. I think um, sometimes the assumption is that the active life is like a life of social justice, you know, which is a good thing. But I think historically in, you know, spiritual traditions that it's more a life of virtue, just like you were saying, you know, for these, you know, alcoholics that were going through this rite, you were like, this is, this is the beginning of a very long journey. And that journey includes essentially that life of um, transformation, of making amends, of taking inventory, you know, and it's all the inner work that comes after that. Cause it's not like we have these axial mystical moments and then it's like, look, I'm a mystic now, <laughs> you know, everything's yeah, great. It, it's, no, that's so, that's so important. That's really true. See, I think traditionally, this is the link between mystical awakening and the corporal works of mercy. Mm. This is the link between mystical awakening and social justice. Mm -hmm. This is what Merton saw in his book, Seeds of Destruction and Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Mm. He says that really what happens is that the more authentic, he once told me in direction, we were in this cloistered monastery. And he says, you know, we did not come here to this cloistered monastery to breathe a rarefied air beyond the suffering of the world. We came here to carry the suffering of the whole world in our heart. He said, otherwise, there's no validity in living in a place like this. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, what happens is, is this translates. See, all things consider. Let's say I'm in my sitting, and let's say I'm grounding myself in this. And then I ask for the grace as my sitting ends and I head through the day, how not to break the thread of this awareness. Okay? So that whatever, I, walking down a hallway, meeting somebody, sitting in a room, drive, how is this how is this habitually going on and how in the midst of this activity might it manifest itself that is how can i become a healing presence 
in an all too often traumatized and traumatizing world? And how can I be someone who, in whose presence others are able to see mirrored this dimension of themselves by the way I listen to them, the way I'm real with them, the way I care about them? And so really it goes on continuously. Mm. The axis of the turning world um, manifests itself in this activity, which is really participation in creation, because creation is an ongoing activity of this self-donating love pouring itself out as the sun going across the sky and breathing in and breathing out. Yes. It's like that, I think. I know you've received this question before, but I'm curious how you'd answer it now. Um, It's one thing for monks to meditate in a monastery and and to be able to continue in that stance and um, that presence, offer that healing presence throughout the day in a life that's really centered around that, that's meant to be conducive to that, at least in intention. what advice do you have for those of us who live in the day-to-day world when it's really hard to bring that presence in the midst of, you know, meetings and crying children and all the stresses of daily life? That's a great, it's really, it's really, really true. There are those for whom it's their vocation Mm -hmm. to bear witness to this habitual abiding, believing that in their fidelity to it, it touches the whole world, which we don't understand. That's true. But let's say, this say I'm drawn to this. It is I'm really drawn. How do I deepen my experience of God's presence in my life and deepen my response to it? I'm drawn to it. So these are the three guidelines, I think, that are woven into the way. The first is to find your practice and practice it. A practice is any act habitually entered into with your whole heart that takes you to your deeper place. The Zen master Aida Roshi said, if you're faithful to your practice, your practice will be faithful to you. So what you do is you set aside a time, like a rendezvous with God. There's no agenda but love. See, there's no, Thomas Brinton once said, with God, a little sincerity goes a long, long way. And you sit there, here I am, Lord, like this. And so you do your lexio or your word, whatever, whatever practice you're drawn to. But it's, it's a practice, it's something you do which if you do it with your whole heart, little by little by little, it stabilizes you in this state. And you need to be very patient with it because it, it takes time. You know, you have to develop, it's like learning, it's like someone who uh, does long distance swimming or running. You, you can't do it every so often. You know, it you almost has to be something you're in the flow of it, where unless you're faithful to it, the rest of the day doesn't go well. And so you have to develop the habit of it and it goes against the stream as the buddha would say someone once said trying to live this way in the world is like trying to make a u-turn on the freeway at rush hour it goes in the opposite but if you let yourself be carried along by that you'll lose your way that somehow at the simplicity of a child i'm i'm right here like this and then little by little by little over time all life becomes practice it becomes an habituated state over a lifetime the second the second aspect of the way is to find your teaching and follow it and a teaching is any teaching that bears witness to this and offers guidance in the path to be stabilized in it so right now this is the teaching we're bearing witness to this so a contemplative understanding of the of the scripture open up everything jesus says how i put it it's like falling off a cliff 
that you'll never, 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 never get to the bottom of anything, he says. Because it drops down into the bottomless abyss of God welling up and giving itself to the world and everything that he says. It's like that. And yet everything he says, approached from the standpoint of the ego, is like a wall of sheer granite. How can I get out of this? How can I do this? How can I? But if I sit with it, like an unlearned child in his open stance, then see the teaching. And so find the Zen Master Dogen says, find that person whose words awaken your heart with the desire for the great way, then forget everything else. Mm. And so you find your teachers. So for me, Thomas Merton is one of my teachers. Or a person might read The Cloud of Unknowing, or some other teacher, or a certain poet. I don't know what it is, but whenever I read this person, their words, the cadence and rhythms of their words help ground me in the reality of this unitive mystery. And they offer guidance in how to be faithful to it. So you journal it out, you think it through, you, it's a, it becomes a path. And so little by little by little, you realize that life is your teacher, little by little. But there is no lack, there is no lack of spiritual direction. There's only a lack of the awareness of the direction being given because every moment we're being directed. The question is, are we supple enough or delicate enough or humble enough to discern, you know, the guiding light leading us on and on and on. So we find our practice and practice it till all life becomes practice. We find our teaching and follow it till you realize that life is your teacher. And next you find your community and follow it and join it, enter it. The deepest community is you and God, the transubjective communion of the infinite community where you're taken into the Trinitarian oneness that is your destiny. And, um, then it's just one other person in whose presence you know you're not alone on this path. The person, you might live with the person, lucky you. And maybe the person's been dead for centuries, John of the Cross. But the deathless presence of their fidelity to this, when you read them out loud, you know, you, know, the, you form a community with them. I like the Zen Buddhists say that when we study the Dharma, when we study the way of the Buddha, he said it's like, uh, your forehead is pressed up against the forehead of sages down through the ages, and the hairs of your eyebrows are entangled with the eyebrow, their hair like this, and you're in this kind of state, you know, where in the purity of a word, you, you can tell the teaching. That, yeah. When you read it, even before you think about it, your heart realizes that it's beautiful, mm. and your mind knows it's beautiful because it's true. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Find the person whose words speak this way. Sometimes also we realize in our life, people don't maybe think this way. Sometimes like our grandmother or grandfather or mother or father, lover or spouse, friend, whatever. If we're lucky, there's a certain person by their kind of earthy realness. You know, they're kind of self-giving, unquestioning way they're present to life and to you. You, you, you can tell their presence makes the world a better place to be, you know. And they form mm. a community. You're like words, birds of a feather flock together. Mm. And so we seek out kinship with people. That's why I think websites like yours or podcasts like yours, that's what it's all about. Monastery and cyberspace. It's like a, an interconnected gathering yes. that transcends space and time. And uh, so um, that community, then you realize the whole world is your community. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It's the world. Mm. And so you find your practice and practice it, find your teaching and follow it, find your community and enter. And those are the kind of archetypal or uh, transcendental qualities of the way to 
woven right into our very nature, really. And so as we learn to be faithful to them in our own pace and in our own way, little by little, we can discover in our own way that we're living this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that's very practical advice for those of us who recognize I'm not living in a monastery. Um, no. You know, some of us, you know, you and I have had that experience and it is a wonderful thing where you have hours of prayer each day. And, but it's also not all it's cracked up to be sometimes. Seriously. Or another way, another way to look at it too, is say the people who listen to your podcast, um, think how many people clicked on your podcast and said, I'll pass. So the very fact they're drawn to listen bears witness to their heart that they are on this path. Mm. Because on this path is where they find being meditatively present to it is their practice. They find it at the teaching. They find mm. it in a community. And so like the soul knows where it needs to go to find what it needs to find. Mm. And uh, you can tell when you've landed in the place where the flow is happening. Yeah. And, uh, you just go with it. Yeah. Do you have time for one more question? Uh-huh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that these, you know, you have this aha moment that these axial moments um, can happen in therapy and in this healing of trauma. And I'm wondering if there's a moment, um, an axial moment in your own life that you'd like to share of when um, that trauma and maybe some of the difficult things that you'd experience, you know, how, share however much or however little you would like. Um, yes. But when that became a moment of encounter and receptivity to the okay. divine. Oh, okay, good. I'll share three more. I'm writing my memoir now, so I'm this time into this. Sure. <laughs> I'm into myself these days. So okay. let me share for me where this happened real briefly. Touch sure. The first time for me, very briefly, was my father was a violent alcoholic. Mm. And I was about three years old. And I was lying in dark in the bed afraid because I was listening to my father beat my mother outside the door. And I was very sad because maybe earlier that day he had hit me. And I knew that if he wanted to, tomorrow he'd hit me again and no one was going to stop it. My mother was a devout Roman Catholic. And we would take, she'd take us to Mass, would ask us to pray to God to give us the strength to get through the things that happen the way that she puts it when Daddy gets angry. And so lying there in the dark, I took my mother's words to heart and I prayed the way frightened children pray. And my experience was that God heard my prayer came to me in the dark and merged with me, letting me know that I wasn't alone. It was the earliest experience. And I, I realized later when I got up the next morning and went out, the, the violence still went on, but it was better. Because uh, when my father was hitting me, he thought he was hitting me, but he was hitting that effigy of me. He didn't know the real me had been taken by God into a secret place he didn't know about. Later, I became a psychologist and realized I was dissociating. And really, I borrowed my mother's religious imagery. And uh, I, I lived in this dissociative state with gave it a religious meeting. But the fact I was dissociating does not mean at all that God did not hear my prayer, that God did not sustain me and, and, and be given to me and to be one with me. Okay. The second moment for me, uh, it was in the monastery where one, it was cloistered. And we got up at 2.30 in the morning and all of us chanting the Psalms. And we didn't talk, it was in complete silence. We used sign language. I don't know if they do that anymore, the Travis Sisters, but then it was that. And so it was this cloistered silence, manual labor and simplicity and prayer, I guess. And the accumulative effect of that silence was really something. So the big turning point for me 
was um, I, I got permission from Merton to spend time each day in an abandoned in the loft of an abandoned sheep barn. And uh, one time I was up there, and the doors were always open out on this meadow. And I was walking back and forth reading the Psalms. And all of a sudden, there was a vivid realization that what we tend to think of as the air is really God. And I was literally walking back and forth through God, breathing God. And that the God, this oceanic God I was breathing, knew me through and through and through and through with compassion. And I knew that if I would try to run away from God, I'd be running away from God in God. And wherever I ended up, God would be waiting for me when I got there. And I didn't need to run away because it was, it was endless mercy in all directions. And I, I walked around like that for three days. I walked around like that for three days. It just so, I don't know, just really. Uh, the, the third day I was walking up this little dirt road, I share, breathing God. And up this little lake I used to go to. And um, there was a low-lying branch of a tree. And I reached out and I touched one leaf on the tree and looked up in the sky. There was one cloud in the sky. And I said out loud, it's one. With the God I was breathing, the cloud in the sky, the leaf that I was touching myself. And I left the road. I went over into this field. It was a very windy day. I sat all afternoon like that. Changed my whole life. Mm. It's never left me. I mean, it's left me a lot through later traumas and things I had to go through. But in some foundational sense, and so I feel that when I teach, I'm teaching that. See, when I left the monastery, I asked Dan Walsh, how can I convey this unitive mystery to people out here? And he said, you can't communicate it, but it will communicate itself through you if you're convinced in what you say and if you are what you say, because deep calls unto deep. And you know it'll be communicating itself because something deep in, within them will know it's being addressed. Merton called this spiritual communication. And I've always based it on that. And then I see therapy as the modality of that. You know, the depth dimension of the therapy has that, has that same kind of quality to it. Sometimes it's latent. It's in the background. It depends on the person. Mm -hmm. But um, so for me, those would be three moments mm. for me. And um, so, and my wife dying too. Was when she died right here in the living room last mm -hmm. March of Alzheimer's, you know, sitting next to her when she died. And, it was another moment for me. So there you go. It's my yeah. life, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, beautiful. It is just as Dan Walsh said, you know, that deep calling unto deep, because it's, I find it's not just the words, but the presence that you share as you share those stories that, you know, it's, um, I can feel even just in my body, you know, the, the, yeah. the quieting and that. Yeah, yeah being drawn into that deeper presence. That's right, that's right. And see that presence is the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Giving yourself away is the intimate immediacy of the gift of your presence. And so when we're together like this, each and anyone who's listening to this who feels it, they're with us too. Yes. Like this. And I think this is the this is contemplative community. I mean this yes. is what we're trying to honor and walk with and help people with and yeah. Yes. Well, I appreciate that you were able to share some of that today, the contemplative community and speaking of the things that no one can express. Yeah. yeah. Thank you too for the work you do and making this available to people, these, these yes, teachers, all these teachers. Yeah. Beautiful. Yes. And Jim, if people want to learn more about your work and some of the things that you're up to, where should they go? 
I would say if they go to my website, which is run by CDC, just jamesfinley.org, they'll see their uh, videos and things like this. Now, they'll also see uh, recorded the ones at the Fetzer uh, that I gave, I think it's 10 hours that I gave on two contemplative weekends, where I laid this out as seven steps of this. And at the end of it is a printout, a PDF file of these seven steps with, with a list of readings in the mystical traditions and depth psychology. And there's also the smaller previous version with Sounds True, Trauma and Transcendence that I did with Carolyn Mays. So there's the Sounds True audio. There's the longer audio files. There's another audio set that's gonna be put on later. And then there's those talks. And I would hope this book that I'm working on, um, I, would, I would hope that at the present rate, uh, I, I hope to have it done within the next four to five months, maybe. So it shouldn't be too much longer. And we'll Wonderful. See. Yeah, we'll, we'll all keep an eye out for that. And then, and also, I, I, don't, I think too, the Turning to the Mystics podcast, there, mm -hmm. there's a lot of that in those. There's a lot of this, the tonal quality of those podcasts with person notes is, resonates with this too. So those would be places they could go. Absolutely. Yes. JamesFinley.org and Turning to the Mystics. You'll find all of that on his website. Yep. Um, wonderful. Well, this has been a great gift. I feel like I could ask you questions and talk about these things for hours. So I'm glad we at least got, got some time. Me too. Me too. I'm, I'm grateful. Good. Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us today and for yeah, tuning thank in. Thank you very much, mm -hmm. everybody. And thanks. Thank you.